like everybody is enjoying fellowship this morning. It's good to see you. We've got a lot of work to do, so if you want to turn in your app or your Bible to Psalm 22, if you don't have a Bible, in the chairs in front of you, there is a black hardcover Bible that's available to you. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 22 this morning as we continue in our series through the Psalms. We've covered several in the last few weeks, and as we continue the series throughout the summer, we've got many more. How many of you are reading the Psalms because we're in this series right now? Reading through the Psalms right now? Okay, good. How many of you read the, through the Psalms regularly? Read through the Psalms regularly, yes. How many Psalms are there? 150, 150 of them, plenty of short ones, a few really long ones. Um, but we are looking forward to having several more uh, preachers this summer going through the Psalms. Um, I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Bible Church. Our senior pastor is on vacation. And so hopefully, well, maybe he's watching. Maybe hopefully he's not watching. I don't know. <laughs> if you're watching, Ron, hi. <laughs> Well, we're in Psalm chapter 22, and today we get to another one of the Psalms of Lament. We've covered several Psalms already of this nature, and we'll get through to several other types of Psalms in this series. But I hope that today um, we can really drill down into um, understanding uh, the Psalms as they were written, the Psalms as Jesus applied them, and the Psalms as you and I can use them and apply them in our daily lives today, tomorrow, this week. So we're in Psalm 22. And as I read, it's a little bit longer of a psalm than we've covered the first few weeks. As I read, I want to implore you that maybe we ought to consider how we read when we read the Bible. Even if it's silently in your own head. Uh, Maybe it's even as you listen to an audio. How many of you listen to an audio Bible regularly? You listen to an audio Bible. Wow, look at that. That's a lot. All right. And I would, I would urge you, no matter your perceived reading level, to read with expression. Because you cannot read Psalm 22 in a boring way, or you're just gonna blow it. You're gonna miss the whole thing. And there's emotion here, obvious emotion here. And so I'm not saying, that, uh, you know, in your quiet time, all of a sudden your family's running in to see how you're doing because you're falling on the floor and, and weeping, but perhaps that's necessary sometimes. But by the way, if you're in a car on your commute, no one can hear you, so just go for it, right? Um, if you look at the first verse, there's no way you read this, my God, my God. <sighs> well, <laughs> you can't do that. It just totally lose the tenor of the psalm. So I'm going to read it expressively. So forgive me, but Psalm chapter 22, I think this is somewhat, somewhere near what David meant when he made this in his head and then when he wrote it down. So Psalm chapter 22, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to Yahweh, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Father, we thank you for this expression of David's and we know the expression of Jesus on the cross of forsakenness, of abandonment, of desperation. And Lord, this is meant to give us words for our circumstances, our trials, our tribulations, our difficulties, our pain. So Lord, I pray today that you would do way more than, than I can cover here. Lord, that you would deliver your word from my mouth to people's ears and hearts. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here in this room who does not believe that this is the word of God, that in 40 minutes that will change. Not because I am eloquent, but because your word is powerful. So Lord, I pray that you would do the work that we would see what David wrote 3,000 years ago, what Jesus screamed on the cross 2,000 years ago, and what we can cry out to you in 2021. God be with us as we learn 
Help us to take this with us. It's easy to sit here in the air conditioning and ponder. It is hard tomorrow on the way to work for this to be real. So drill it down into us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read Psalm 22, what were some words you would use to describe this psalm? Prophetic. Anguish. It's a good word. Raw. Raw. Conflicted. Sorrowful. Dismayed. Desperate. Needy. Anyone ever felt like that? Anyone need words when you don't know what you're feeling, but it's something like that? Um, I'm not a great feeler. <laughs> so this psalm um, is helpful for me because there are times when I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know why I'm feeling. I can't identify or communicate what I'm feeling. The Lord knows what I'm feeling, though, right? Some of you are the opposite. You've got paragraphs for what you're feeling <laughs> that are very accurate and detailed and helpful. And listen, that's not, not, neither of these are wrong, right? God has made us with different personalities, but we need to connect to David's feeling here and also Jesus's because we read verse one as Christians and we cannot help but think of the gospels when Jesus cries these very same words from the cross. However, before we talk about the cross, we cannot understand that well unless we get what David is writing and why he's writing it. We have to as we look back from 2021 and we look through the lens of the Bible and we look through the New Testament, we need to go back a thousand years to Psalm 22 before we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So as quickly as I can, emphasis on as I can, we will move through and see what the Lord has for us today. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, called this the Psalm of the Cross. But in order to understand it as the Psalm of the Cross... It needs to be understood as the psalm of of David. In fact, it is a psalm of David. So what are we seeing here in this psalm? Well, Well, bird's eye view, I think David and great David's greater son, as Jesus has been called, wrestles with God's seeming absence and silence before realizing God's rescue, resulting in public praise. So, Pastor Ram, when he introduced the Psalms, talked about different genres of Psalms, right? So the next time that I preach, Lord willing, will be the next Psalm, which is very different, right? The Lord is my shepherd sounds a whole lot different than my God, my, right? It's a very different Psalm. Psalm uh, 150 is a whole lot different than um, Psalm 88 and 89. Psalm 119 goes on forever and talks about the same thing over and over and over, right? There are different Psalms. What kind of Psalm is this? Well, most uh, scholars take this as a, a psalm of individual lament. But even one of the guys I was looking at had it characterized under praise and lament. And that's interesting because Pastor Ron pointed out that almost every lament in the psalms turns to praise. But as Sarah said, it's conflicted, right? It's like, it's like riding a roller coaster at the beginning. Um, because there's deep, deep pain and raw emotion and also words of faith, words of trust. Yet... But all of these back and forths. And I think that it's also interesting that, yes, it is an individual lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But if you read the whole psalm, we don't stay in the prayer closet. We don't stay on the floor in our room. We move to the congregation. And that's important for us to see in this lament. So the first two verses uh, there in your notes are a bitter burst of complaint and questioning. And it is a burst right out of the gate. There's a, a question directed at God. And it is the question uh, that we sometimes are told not to, not to ask. And the question is, why? The question is, why? When David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is an accusation, I think, couched in implicit trust. He is asking God, why are you, for, why are you forsaking me? Why are you gone? Where are you? But notice, he says, my God. My God. There is, there is still the possessive, that he has a relationship with this God who seems absent, gone, void. Does, does your life ever feel like that? Have you ever said, God, where are you? It's okay to say that. Especially in the spirit of David here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel and Elijah's mocking them. Maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's, he's, he's not around, you know. He's not near. David's, David's looking around. Where are you, Lord? And, and you'll notice it's interesting that although many of the Psalms, not many, some of the Psalms are anchored in actual, um, stories in the, in the Bible, especially David's stories, we don't know where in David's life this is, which is good for us because it means that it's not just for, well, I mean, my life's not on the line like David's was, so I can't really pray this. It's, it's generalized enough to make it, if you feel this, this is a good way to communicate with the Lord. First, because David did it, the man after God's own heart. And second of all, Jesus prayed it. In fact, it was, it was on Jesus' mind enough to say it while in, in torturous agony on the cross. Oh my God, what is David doing? It's an all-day, all-night prayer. It continues to come to his lips. You ever pray like that too? Generally, when I pray that way, it's help me. Because I don't know what else to say. Help, please, God, help. Help. And so I, I hope that you, you don't feel the need to like descend to a certain depth to be able to pray like this to God. Right? So, so your depths don't have to be someone else's depths. Right? You, you can't look and say... Well, that person just lost a loved one, so my problems aren't really that bad. They can pray this, I can't. That, that's not at all what's happening here. This is, that's why it's helpful to see this as an individual lament. You come to the Lord with the depths of your issues, how you're feeling them, and bring them before Him. I think that many of you are, have been, or are, in a similar situation to our home where there are young children at home and sometimes the and by night I find no rest is very real. And we might be able to to kind of shrug that off and be like, well, that's what happens when you have kids. Well, it sure is. But at three o'clock in the morning, it does not feel like, well, it's okay. It's just how it goes. You know, it's the it's the fury building up within you. It is the, the, the foggy thoughts. 
So maybe, like me, you think, I don't know what's happening right now. I have zero control over this child, this individual who you have given to me, Lord. Help me. All the way from that to actual, in the hospital, in the ambulance, right? All of these situations merit our going to God. God wants to hear from us. David doesn't know where God is. He doesn't hear any answers. He can't even rest. He's weary to the bone. We'll come back to Jesus' cry on the cross when he repeats this. But let's look at verses 3 through 5. And verses 3 through 5 remind us that what we are certain of, what we are certain of, we ought to return to. So notice, David is, is deep in pain and grief and confusion. And the next thing that he says is yet. Right? That's really big. Yet you are holy. He says, I feel this way. What do I know? What do I know? He returns to what he knows. And what he knows is how God has acted in the past for his people. He says in verse 4, And you are fathers trusted. What's he referring to? He's remembering Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel. He's looking back. What happened? They trusted. And what did God do? He delivered them. So they were in dire situations and God delivered them. I am in a dire situation. I don't know where God is. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Two in a row, trusted, trusted. David is recognizing the place of faith. Faith is necessary when we can't see. Someday, folks, when we are in heaven with the Lord, we will no longer need faith because we'll be right there with the Lord. We'll be right there. There will never, ever again be any wondering where he is or if he hears us. But until that time, we must have faith. We must trust. So this is why we, you, me, we need to be intimately acquainted with the scriptures. You don't just read through the Bible once and go, got it, done, on the shelf. How many of you remember every word that you've read from the Bible? How many of you have read something recently that you go, I didn't know that was in there, right? Or you said, I knew that was in there, but it didn't mean that last time because my life changed, right? I knew that before. Now I'm married. What in the world? I knew that before. Someone died. It takes on new relevance. We have to be intimately acquainted with the scriptures and not just information. We don't log it away so we can answer trivia questions. We log it away so that in the time when we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have an anchor to return to. So we need to make friends with Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and Miriam and Samuel and David and Jehoshaphat and Nehemiah and so many others. We need to know the storyline of the Bible so we can match our experiences to theirs and trust in the very same God who ministered to them in their times of deepest darkness. If we know the scriptures, if we believe in the God who did that then, then we have an anchor to return to. This is exactly what David does. Yet you're holy. God, where are you? I, I know this about you. 
It doesn't feel factual or correct or real or present or near. But I know it's true. And just as we get on the roller coaster, verse (laughs) 6, but I am a worm and not a man. (laughs) Right back down into the depths. And this is the sad reality of the present. The sad reality of the present. And I don't think it's David um, being self-deprecating or like uber meek. He feels like a worm in the presence of others. Look, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. What is a worm? A worm in, in Bible times is almost always, um, some, it could be a caterpillar, okay, something that, was, that would eat the plants. Think of Jonah when the plant grows up and God sends the worm to eat it. Okay, he's seen, he's seen as, as destructive, as gross. Okay, he, he's seen as subversive. This is how he's seen, and he sees himself as he is seen, right? How many of you, other sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, correct? Is that true? No, it's not. How many of you are wounded by words? We are. David takes this to heart. I'm a worm, not a man. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then look at this, this sarcastic. And by the way, verse 8, I think it's coming from fellow Israelites. I think it's coming from his own people. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's sarcastic. This is what his enemies are saying about him. And you know what? To David, it seems like they're right. If he he does delight in me, why doesn't he rescue me? Why doesn't he pull me out? Why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't God fix the situation? Why doesn't God give me a job? Why doesn't God save my family members? We can go on and on. This is the real rawness of the psalm. First word of verse 9 is? Yet. Again, yet. What we are certain of, part 2. So what we are certain of in verses 3 through 5 is the past and how God has interacted with Israel. And what we see in verses 9 through 11 is David's own experience. He looks back at his own life, right? Is this helpful sometimes to look back? Oh, wait. Hold on, I've been here before. I've been here before. God took care of me. It was brutal. It was hard. But here I am. God took me through it. He can do it again. So what does he go back to? He goes back to his infancy, his birth. David goes all the way back to, God, you were so intimately involved in my life that when I came out of the womb, it's almost like like Yahweh is the midwife who, who pulls David out and puts David on his mom's chest. God does that. And like the trust is from there. So I've been there at a few births. And, and this is an actual thing, right? Here's a real live baby out in the open, finally. Put the baby on mom's chest and you see the picture here. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. What does that baby No. Baby knows, man, it is bright. It is cold. What is going on? Probably not even that. (laughs) So this is a beautiful picture of David the baby, us the baby, (laughs) of complete, childlike, helpless, trusting dependence. The baby cannot survive on its own. The baby must trust that mom will provide. 
And so what does the baby do when baby wants mom to provide? <coughs> right? At all hours of the day and night. And that was a very tame little cry there. Why? Because all that the baby knows is going to rescue it. My little tummy hurts. I need milk. Now. So, this is how David prays. I can't save myself. I need you right now. Where are you? It's the baby in the other room, and mom's tired, and mom's taking her sweet time to come get the baby, and the cries are starting to get a little louder, right? Where are you? I think David does this on purpose to let us know this is the cry of a dependent person. You are not independent. I am not independent. Like this, and my breath is gone, should God will it. I am completely dependent on the Lord for life and breath. So what is the plea in verse 11? Be not far from me. I need you close. I need you close, Lord. Trouble is near. There's no one to help. David experienced this literally all throughout his life in many different ways. You and I, maybe not in the same way as David, but we feel this. There's none to help. Nobody can fix this problem. In verses 12 through 21, David turns and begins to speak of the enemies, their persecution, and his plea. And he begins by talking about different kinds of animals. So look at verse 12. He talks about bulls. And this is primarily referring to an animal that no longer exists. It's extinct. These wild oxen that used to live in the Middle East, and they're extinct now, but they were massive. Um, Probably larger than anything that's in America um, at the moment, anything you can go get at a slaughterhouse. (laughs) This is a, a, a huge beast. They were wild untamed, and they lived in Bashan, which is up near Galilee. It's in the mountains. These are rugged, surviving bulls out there on their own. These are not bulls that like to be penned up or brought in to be tamed. And they are dangerous because of their hooves, because of their horns, because of their mass. And this is how David perceives his enemies. They are serious enemies. What else are they like? They're like lions, ravening and roaring. The lion no longer lives in the Middle East, but there is plenty of evidence from 3,000 years ago and more that there were lions in the Middle East. Of course, David knew this as his role as a shepherd, and he sees the lion, he sees his enemies as a lion. Not only that, verses 14 and 15, he tells how he feels by using these analogies. I am poured out like water. I'm not going to pour out my water, I thought about it, but... Poured out. What does the water do? Does it form? Does it shape to anything? No, it just it just flows down. Okay, it it just it just disappears. The water is poured out. It has no shape. And he says, "All my bones are out of joint." And the picture is just he's his whole body is falling apart because of the physical, spiritual, emotional toll that his enemies are having on him. He feels like he's falling apart. And his heart, and what does he mean? Does he mean, does he mean his like left ventricle? <laughs> what does he mean? He means who he is, his soul. Who he is, in the core of who he is, is like wax. I mean, that's not really super encouraging. 
moldable, meltable. It's melting. His heart is melting. His strength in verse 15 is dried up like a potsherd. It's like a broken piece of pottery that doesn't do any good. And his mouth, his tongue sticks to his jaws. Why? Because he's laid in the dust of death. He feels at at his lowest. He continues, verse 16, dogs. Now, listen, in the Bible, there's almost never a point where dogs are like, oh, oh, cute. (laughs) No, dogs are gross. Dogs are disgusting. They have fleas. They have all kinds of yucky stuff that you don't want to do. And they're usually wild and they're usually roaming in packs. Okay? There's almost no evidence that dogs were ever pets at this time. So don't, don't think that. Don't think you're a little pooch. Okay? These things are yucky. You stay away. You hit them with sticks. You throw rocks at them or worse. Okay? Some of you are like, <gasps> no, the, you don't want this dog near you. And that's what he calls his enemies. His enemies are like dogs. They're packs. They're surrounding him. And this interesting phrase, the end of verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. There's so much that we could talk about. Is that a reliable translation? It's, it's so tough to, to understand. Um, but many of our Bibles have that translation in there. Look at this, verse 17. He says, I can count all my bones. He's looking around. He's skinny. He doesn't have any sustenance. He can see all of his bones. His enemies are staring and gloating. What are they doing? They're dividing his garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. They're making it a game. <laughs> we got his clothes. Who wants his clothes? Let's roll the dice. That's total disrespect. We'll take your clothes. We'll play a game for keeping them. It's like you're already dead and you don't need this anyway. David creatively tells God how he feels, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, Lord, I'm down. He tells the Lord in no uncertain terms how he's feeling over and over and over again. Permission. For you and me to do the same. God can handle it. He's not surprised at your situation. Oh my goodness, what is happening down there? I just don't know. Why is Brian mad at me? He knows exactly why Brian's mad at him. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He's sovereign over the situation. Come to him about the situation. Verse 19 is the plea. But you, O Lord, again, do not be far off. Help me. Deliver me. Save me. Again, we have the dog, the lion, the oxen. And then at the end of verse 21, I think the ESV has done us a disservice here. So if you're reading the ESV, it's it's tough. You have a little note on the word rescued. There at the end of verse 21. Um, the word is literally answered. And considering what David is doing, I think answer is a much better interpretation here. So if you want to write that in there in your Bible, I mean, you have a note that says answered in Hebrew. But if you want to write that out, because what's David asking for? Talk! Where are you? Help! Show up! Say something! And so, when God shows up, how does he show up? Verse 21, he answers. And this is the hinge of the psalm. It turns from here. This whole psalm has been mainly lament, some hope, some praise, a little bit, little bit there. And then here's the hinge where it moves. And you're going to notice the, the change in the tone. Before it's been, do not be far off. Save me. Rescue me. Help me. Where are you? You don't, you're not listening to me. I can't find you. I can't rest. My life's awful. Everything's dangerous. Verse 22, we begin to see the turn. God listens. And so we praise him. God listens. So we praise him. 
Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Whoa. That's a reversal. That's different. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You know what he said? He said, I'm going back to church. (laughs) I'm going to praise you not just at my home, not just in my car. I'm going to go be with God's people and rejoice there. This is really important. We are Americans through and through, and we have to get it through our thick American skulls that God has primarily wired us to worship together. Now, praise the Lord, we can worship anywhere we are. We don't have to go to a temple. But listen, church church attendance is not necessary because we have people that are watching today that would love to be here. They can't be here. The thief on the cross never went to church. But church attendance in the Bible is not optional. The assumption is that as often as we can, when we can, we're with God's people. Because what is God doing? He's not saving individual persons. He's raising up a people, a church, together. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying... I'm not saying when I'm not here next Sunday because I'm on vacation. (laughs) Wow, I didn't realize this. Next week, I'm going to live this out. Be here. You know when the most important time to be here is? It's when you don't feel like being here. How many of you in 2020 and 2021 have not wanted to come to church on a Sunday? You didn't want to be here. (laughs) Okay? That's the best time to get here. Have you been encouraged ever by someone else in the church singing? Ever been encouraged by someone else singing? I was encouraged this morning by three little girls sitting next to me in the front row that were just belting out Man of Sorrows. I mean, it was like kind of a little bit of a yell over here. It was, it was a little bit of a din. Um, but it was awesome. There were three little girls crying out to God. That encouraged me. Have you ever been encouraged just by being here and observing and seeing what God is doing? I was encouraged this morning by the, the sound guys by the live stream guys, by the worship team, the hard work going into all the stuff that happens beforehand, especially when things break loose and things have to be fixed. Be here. Be with God's people. This is what David said. I want to go to the congregation. I'll praise you. And now it goes from my, me, and I to you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. He's telling them. He's telling his testimony. He's talking to Israelites. He's talking to his brothers. He's talking to, in our situation, he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to those who are a part of his people. Look at verse 24. This is important for him to to say. In verse 1, he said, you've forsaken me. In verse 24, he says, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God is not disgusted by your suffering. He's not disgusted from your suffering. He isn't in a way, I'll get back when they have a good attitude. He is not despised or abhorred. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David said, I, you're not listening to me. And now David says, no, no, you, you heard me. Isn't that how it is sometimes? In the midst of things, God, where are you? And sometimes that's for 10 seconds and sometimes that's for 10 years. And sometimes it'll be until we die and we see Jesus and we go, oh, 
Finally. Yes. Okay. Okay. Like, right, right, none of us are going to show up, show up in heaven the second after we die and go, ah, oh, man, wait, hold on. That's not going to happen. Right? When you see the face of God, you're not going to regret being there. Some of you think heaven is boring. You need to read your Bible. Here's your option. Sinlessness, face of God. Here. I mean, like, what? (laughs) The scale just broke. (laughs) Look at what he does as he continues in verses 25 and 26. He tells God, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. He says, my praise comes from you. It's this cycle. God gives me the ability and the praise to praise him, and I praise him. And then God gives me the ability to praise him, and I praise him. And it all comes back to glorifying God. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. And then he says, may your hearts live forever. And I had to look this one up because I was my first time reading through. I said, what does that mean, may your hearts live forever? It almost sounds like, king, may you live forever. And I was like, what does that mean, may your hearts live forever? Whose hearts? In fact, some translations have one heart, and that confused me even more. Because I, as I pondered it, it obviously, I, well, I think it's obvious. I think it goes back to, the line before, those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. He's talking about the people of God. He's saying, those who are praising God, may your hearts live forever. May you have forever to praise God, to worship God, to give praise back to him. And then it turns in this last part of the psalm, in an incredible way, verses 27 through 31, it turns to this. Tell everyone, near and far, about the true king and worship him. It goes from... Me, David, my problems, my enemies, my request, to worshiping God in the congregation. And now it's the whole earth. It's it's expansive. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations. This goes back to Genesis chapter 12. When God said to a, a, a guy living in ancient Babylon... That through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now more than a thousand years later, David is saying, this is happening. And folks, we've seen it happen. Because you know why? We're in America. Israel's a long way away. We are the ends of the earth. We are at the ends of the earth. We are the families of the nations. Look around us. Look at the backgrounds. Look at the skin color. Look at the eye color. Look at the hair color of all the people in this room. We're so different. But one thing unites us, and that's the blood of Jesus. He's brought us together. Why? Because kingship belongs to Yahweh. He is gathering a people. Not the people that anyone thought. Like, look at you and me. Like, we're not, there's not a lot to write home about, okay? But God's brought us together. And then in verse 29, he basically says, everybody, the lowest, the highest, everyone, is brought to the Lord. Posterity shall serve him. Now we're looking to the future. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. To people that haven't even been born yet, the good news is going to come. Praise is going to come. And watch how he ends it. That he has done it. 
and because I'm short on time, I cannot, I cannot get away from, there, the, there are lots of different thoughts from different commentators. I cannot get away from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that Jesus shouts on the cross? And this psalm ends with, almost, it is finished. Um, that's not a universal view. You can quibble with that, okay? But I find that incredibly compelling. He has done it. David didn't say, yes, I did it. He says, he has done it. So quickly, you have in your notes Psalm 22 appearances in the New Testament. And obviously Jesus cries from the cross this very phrase. What does that mean? It means at least that Jesus had this memorized. Second, it means he was meditating on it, probably in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he had seen David's words and understood that the Holy Spirit inspiring David 1,000 years before Jesus came that this was speaking, yes, of David's experience, but also of great David's greater son's experience. When he stepped, on, stepped to the cross, he was forsaken. He felt forsaken. This is what Jesus felt on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening? Why did Jesus feel forsaken? In the, in the garden, Jesus is desperate. Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What cup? The Old Testament, the word cup usually refers to God's wrath that he's mixing like wine to pour out on the nations. What does that mean? It means that Jesus on the cross is bearing all the wrath of God. Have you ever been terrified of God? You know that verse that says, your sin will find you out? You've been like, oh my word, God knows. What would God do to me if I did this? What would God do to his son to pay for all the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him? Jesus is experiencing on the cross the full weight of the wrath of his father on him, the only one who didn't deserve any of that wrath. It's a complete reversal. So it is no small thing that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on at the base of the cross? Mockery from his own people. Israelites, Jews right there saying, ha ha, what, what God's going to deliver you? Why don't you get off the cross, Jesus? Save yourself. Not knowing that what they're saying is completely ironic because if Jesus gets off the cross, no one is saved. If Jesus stays off, on the cross, all who believe will be saved. Um, there's, there's more here, but we, we, we just simply don't have time to dive into it. I, I would consider the last section, verses 29 through 31. Take a look at 29 through 31. David has come all the way full, sor- full circle from personal anguish, confusion, to boldly, confidently knowing that there is a future for God's people and God's word. At Village Bible Church, right now, in that building, there are adults and possibly teens who are telling the next generation this good news. My children are over there. I want them hearing the good news from more than just me. 
Our children's ministry needs help. My children, some of your children, need help. We need more people willing to to teach and to work with our kids so that they will hear the good news of Jesus over in that building and so that our adults who love them aren't overloaded. Can I plead with you to consider working in children's ministry? I was going to say it's not hard. It might be hard. Who cares? Can you please? Can we do hard things together? Talk to Pastor AJ, or AJ's up there, or Stephanie Wilson. They go together. Go together. Um, (laughs) Catch one of them and say, how can I help with children's ministry? What holes can I plug? You don't have to commit for the rest of your life. If you did, they'd probably fall over. That'd be awesome. But if you committed for a few months, for a year... So that, so that what? So that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. There are more children that are going to be born from some of you. They need to, <laughs> so I'm done. <laughs> Good. Time to help the rest of us. All right. Yes. Let's make it our mission to not retire from telling the next generation until we're with Jesus. Grandparents and great-grandparents telling not just their grandkids and great-grandkids, but other people's grandkids and kids the good news of Jesus. How many of you were impacted deeply, now you know it's deeply, by by someone who worked with you when you were a kid? Let's help them. Let's do that. I'm going to end here with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book on the Psalms. He says about Psalm 22, not only is Jesus Christ the goal of our prayer, he himself also accompanies us in our prayer. He who has suffered every want and has brought it before God has prayed for our sake in God's name, not my will, but thine be done. For our sake, He cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now we know that there is no longer any suffering on earth in which Christ will not be with us. Jesus doesn't take breaks. He's with us in our suffering. And he's praying with us. Some of you may not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in a Nazi concentration camp because he loved Jesus. Do you think he knew suffering? Ripped away from his wife? from his family, torn about whether or not he should join a rebellion to try to kill Hitler, searching the scriptures to, to find the answer, hanged on a rope, naked, 10 days before the allies got to the camp. Dietrich Bonhoeffer suffered. What was his commitment? He suffered and Jesus was right there with him the whole time. And Jesus is right there with you the whole time. And how good to know that when you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You speak the words of not only David, but Jesus as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time today. Thank you for the songs that we sang today that that raised you up, pointed to you and your work in sending your own son to save us. Jesus We long to be with you. We long to touch you. 
to hug you, to see you, to thank you for all that you have done. We know that you are at the Father's right hand. We also know in some mysterious way that you are right here with us. So Lord, I pray for those who, this is really real right now. They feel the forsakenness of an absent God. Lord, I pray that they would not turn away, but that they would, with faith, pray this prayer and continue to pray to approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have access because of what Jesus did. The temple veil was ripped in two. God, be with us this week. This is really inspiring right now. And we'll probably forget most of it by tomorrow morning. So help us to take this to heart, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.